The story is told of a time when the CIA had an opening for an assassin. And after all the background checks, interviews, and testing were done, there were three finalists. The two were men and one was a woman. For the final test, the CIA agents took one of the men to a large metal door, handed him a gun, and said, we must know that you will follow your instructions no matter what the circumstances and inside this room. You will find your wife sitting in a chair. You're to go in and you're to shoot her. The man looked at him and said, you can't. Yeah, there's a desperate need for a marriage seminar in this church. I sensed it, but now I know for sure it's an affirmation. He goes, you've got to be kidding me. You can't be serious. I could never shoot my wife. And the agent said, then you're not the right man for this job. Take your wife and go home. Second man was in another room at the time, had not heard the instructions. They came to him, gave him the same instructions. He took the gun, went into the room. All was quiet for about five minutes. The man came out with tears in his eyes and said, I tried, but there's no way I could ever kill my wife. The agent said, then you don't have what it takes. Take your wife and go home. Finally, it was the woman's turn. She was given the instructions to go into a room and to kill her husband. She took the gun, went into the room. Shots were heard, one shot after another. Then there was screaming, crashing, and banging on the walls. After a few moments, all was quiet. The door opened slowly, and there stood the woman. She wiped the sweat from her brow and said, You didn't tell me this gun was loaded with blanks. So I had to beat him to death with the chair. What's the point of the story? I'm sure we could all come up with a punchline of our own. But the point is, is that that was one determined woman. And uh, I was reminded, and the second point is, don't, don't, men, don't ever mess with your wives when they're in a bad mood. So that's another point. But that's a whole different conversation, a whole different subject. You know, and I was reminded of that story as I studied Luke's account of the life of Jesus, believe it or not. Turn with me in your Bible to Luke chapter 9, verse 51 through 62, where Jesus transitions from his instruction, as we saw the last time we're together, on true greatness to what I will call true grit. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51 through 62, we find these words. It says, And it came about when the days were approaching for his ascension, that he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. And they did not receive him because he was journeying with his face toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You don't know what kind of spirit you're of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said to him, Permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And another also said, I will follow you, Lord. But first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit. For the kingdom of God. You know, the Bible has much to say about dedication and discipline, determination, being steadfast and immovable, 
uh, laying aside every encumbrance, running with endurance, holding fast to the faith, you know, enduring to the end, being overcomers, fighting the good fight, finishing the course, you know, and, and on and on it goes. And this passage introduces us to a similar thought and also is a turning point in our study of the Gospel of Luke. For from this passage forward, we follow Jesus through the last six months of his earthly life to the cross and even beyond the cross until we see him in resurrection power and also in his glory. You know, the events that we'll examine uh, as, we, as we go forward take place on the road. And this paragraph reveals the attitude of Jesus through the whole, this whole period. And this revelation of his attitude that we see in verse 51 and the demands of Jesus on his followers are illustrated in the following verses, 52 through 62. And in order to better understand the demands that he has on his disciples and also on us, we need to take a closer look at verse 51 where we see his attitude that was revealed in this particular verse. It says, And it came about when the days were approaching for his ascension that he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. You know, one of the things I like to do is I've got a Bible that has different, uh, different translations and it's all on the same page so you can open it up and read different accounts. And in the King James Version, it says that he steadfastly set his face. And the Amplified says he steadfastly and determinedly set his face to go to Jerusalem. In the NIV, it says resolutely as it does here as well as the New American Standard. But it paints a portrait as you go through each different translation and an understanding uh, that he steadfastly set his face says he steadfastly and determinedly, resolutely, it was time and it had come to pass. And the question is, what time is it in this particular period of Jesus' life? And we're told it, it came to pass, it was a time that the days were approaching for his ascension. We had seen in the Mount of Transfiguration that his glory was revealed to Peter, James, and John. And they get a glimpse of what we have to look forward to when we're in his presence. And when we have resurrected bodies, it was, it was to give us a glimpse of the future so that we would have strength and be steadfast and immovable today in the sufferings of this lifetime. Because we know that this isn't what it's all about. We know that this isn't the end. We have hope that goes beyond the world that we live in who have no hope because they don't know. They think this is all that there is. And what happens afterwards is a mystery to them but not to God's people for to us it has been granted the knowledge of the mysteries of God we know what what we can expect we know what lie ahead we know what's coming up in the future we've read the book we've got the ending as well as the beginning we know how it all began we know how it all turns out and we live in a world that's so frustrated and is trying to decide and determine how, how did it all begin and we're sending you know things to other planets to try to find if there's water if there's water maybe there was life and if there was life maybe that's the origin of life and God gives it to us very clearly in his word and God cannot lie in him there was no error or darkness at all and he says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the earth this privileged planet that we live on was put together in such a way to sustain human life and everything else in the universe cries out that there's something different about earth and his word goes on to tell us that God's handiwork is declared in the heavens. As we look around and we see everything that God has done, it shouts forth that there's a creator. Nothing comes into being that has come into being but through him. 
And we recognize and we understand that. And because of that, we have peace and we have hope because we know that there's a creator who has a purpose and a plan for everything. And part of God's plan, the predetermined plan of God and the purpose of God by the foreknowledge of God, we're told was that God would send his son, Jesus Christ, into the world, that he would go into Jerusalem, that he would be crucified, that he would die, that he would suffer at the hands of the elders and the chief priests. But three days after his death, he would be raised again to life. And he is alive today and offers forgiveness to all who come to the cross and turn to him. The Bible tells us that it was the time, this time was approaching, that all that God had planned to do would be fulfilled. He would go into Jerusalem. He would suffer. He would die. He would be crucified. He would be laid in a tomb, and three days later, he would be raised again from the dead. He would spend 40 days continuing to instruct his disciples as to what this life was all about and what we can expect in the life that's to come. And then he, was, then he ascended into heaven in all of his glory, and they stood there, and they, stood in the, and they stared into space. And the angel said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand there staring into space? This same Jesus, as he ascended, will one day come again. And we know that from Scripture that he will judge the living and the dead. And that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God. But there's a window of opportunity that we see and we, and we see that he set his face. And I, and I like the word picture that I get from it. Jesus was locked on his tar- onto his target. And, and nothing would hinder him, nothing would delay him, nothing would detour him from fulfilling his purpose. You know, these words reveal the attitude of Christ, his mindset, his will, his true divine grit to something other than that which he had already accomplished, which was to show the world who he is by the things that he has done. Throughout the gospel account of Luke, I'm sure that you followed that Luke painted a picture that Jesus did everything that he could to help the world see that he is who he claims to be, the very Son of God in human flesh. God in human flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Everything that he did was to help people identify him as the long-promised Savior, Messiah of the world. And so as we look at this, he has set his sights on Jerusalem. And, and when you ask why Jerusalem, because he had already told us in an earlier account that he would be turned over, it was in Jerusalem, that he would be rejected, that he would suffer, that he would die, and he would be raised up on the third day. We know that it was in Jerusalem that because of their rejection of him that they would be doomed. And when the Romans destroyed it in 70 A.D., he said not one stone would be left unturned. And that was also true. But it was also Jerusalem as we see the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ in that particular book in chapter 11, verse 2. And it is Jerusalem, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, that comes down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And see, all of God's plan comes full circle in Jerusalem. And we see that the point is very simple. Though the elders and the chief priests and the scribes would turn him over in Jerusalem and reject him, though the city would be destroyed one day by the Romans for this rejection, and one day it would be destroyed, but yet it would be rebuilt. And Jesus, as he set his face toward Jerusalem, saw not only the travail that was lying ahead, but also the triumph that would come. He saw the victory beyond the apparent defeat. And his attitude, this, this attitude of his is beautifully depicted for us if you turn ahead to the book of Philippians. And see in, in Philippians chapter 2, this attitude of Jesus, this mindset, that is also to be the mindset that is in us as well. In Philippians chapter 2, starting with verse 3, we read these words. 
We're told to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form or the appearance of a bondservant. He was being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess or agree that Jesus Christ is Lord, Jehovah God, to the glory of God the Father. Have this attitude in yourself that was also in Christ Jesus. You know, as we go back and we think about this, you know, what does this have to do with those who claim to follow Jesus Christ? And from what I read, it has everything to do with it. It has everything to do with it. For, for we are to have the same mindset, the same attitude, the same determination to see victory beyond apparent defeat. We know how it all turns out. You know, if you go back to Luke, where Jesus proceeded to educate his would-be followers on what it would take to walk in his footsteps, in verses 51 through 56, he makes them and us aware of the demand of mercy. If you and I are to, if you and I are to walk in Jesus' footsteps, if we're to follow him, if we're to be in his ambassadors, if we're to be his representatives, if we're to reflect his image, his glory to the world around us, then he demands of you and I that we show mercy to those who we come in contact with. And that's the message in the lesson that he teaches in verses 51 through 56. If you'll notice that, it says, And he came about, the days were approaching for his ascension. He resolutely set his face. He was determined to go to Jerusalem. And because of that, he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and they entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. The reason that he did it was there was a large multitude of people that were following him. And so Jesus, talk about planning and being practical, he sent an advance party, an advance team to the city up ahead and said, hey, go make arrangements. We got a bunch of people coming and we don't want anybody to be caught off guard. And so go make arrangements where we can stay. Go make arrangements for food that needs to be bought and provisions. Go into this town and get ready because, you know, we're going to be coming with this multitude of people and we're going to give them an advance notice so we can have things set up for us. And so it was practical and it made sense to do that. And yet at the same time, when they got there, what happened was that they weren't received and they did not receive him because he was journeying with his face to Jerusalem. It was the quickest way to go through Samaria to get to Jerusalem. He was passing through that town. They went and said, hey, you know, we need to make arrangements. The Lord is coming. We need to make arrangements for, you know, a place to stay for, for this multitude of people. We need food. We need some shelter, some whatever else that we need. And they said, you know what? You're not welcome in this town. So go back and tell them that, you know what, there won't be anything waiting for him. You know, they're not welcome here. He's not welcome. They're not welcome. You're not welcome because, you know what, we don't have anything to do with the Jews because of the background that we have with one another as a people. 
You know, and it wasn't surprising that they were rejected because, you know, this mutual hatred between Jews and Samaritans went back for centuries. The Jews considered the, the, the Samaritans to be racial half-breeds because they intermarried with the Assyrians when they were conquered by them. And the Jews felt like, you know what, they held out and they didn't compromise with the culture. And so, therefore, they had a problem with the Samaritans and the Samaritans had a problem with the Jews. Because the Jews didn't receive them and the Samaritans didn't receive them. And so that's just an ongoing battle. And when you understand the deep-seated conflict that went back for generations, it makes much more sense when you read the account of Jesus speaking to not only a woman, but more importantly, a Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. Because, you know, the Jews had nothing to do with the Samaritans. Men had nothing to do with women. And yet here is Jesus blowing up once again the culture of the time, not only talking to a woman, but a Samaritan at that. And the big debate and the, and the controversy between the Jews and the Samaritans were, you know, which site, Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem, which the, what is the site where we go to worship that God is most pleased? And that's why I said there's a time coming and is now here. It doesn't matter where you worship, but you worship Him in spirit and in truth. You can worship God in an elk's lodge. You can worship God, you know, anywhere that you want with disco ball chandeliers and elk heads hanging on the wall because, because it's our heart that God knows and recognizes. It's not the place. It's the heart of the people who gather together to worship him. You know, you can go to one of the most grandiose cathedrals ever built in Europe, and yet if, if our hearts are not right when we go in there, the building means nothing to God because his building, he uses our bodies as a temple of his Holy Spirit. And so it's our heart that God is measuring on a regular basis. But they were all hung up with the logistics. And, you know, and they had their own liturgy. They came up with it. They came up with their own version of the first five books of the Old Testament to rival the Jews. And so the Jews and the Samaritans, they could not stand one another. And so th th their attitude was like, if you ever see those bumper stickers, you know, it was like their attitude was so much to hate and so little time. You know, and it's kind of like that way. It's like, wow, you know, they just hated each other. And so when they went into the city, it wasn't surprising they came back with a bad report. Lord, you're not welcome here. Neither are we. So what are we going to do? And that's why James and John came up with an idea. You know, they were thinkers. They were throwing out some ideas. The first one that came to their mind was... When his disciples, James and John, saw that they had not been received or they were rejected, they said to the Lord, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> Just a thought. <laughs> it's an idea. We're throwing it out. Let's do a little brainstorming. You know, let's kind of throw some ideas out here. And you know, and who hasn't had that thought when they're not welcome and they're rejected by people? I got an idea for them. And it was just, and there was, and there was biblical history, and there's precedent for it because they knew that Jesus came in the spirit of Elijah, and so they knew from their understanding of the Old Testament that there was a point where Elijah had called down fire from heaven. He said, "If I'm a man of God, then may God consume these men whom uh, Ahaziah had sent to him." These groups of 50 men had been sent to Elijah to take him into captivity. And Elijah said, you know, if I'm really a man of God, God send down some fire and consume them. Poof, gonzo. 50 of them gone at that time. You know, Aziah said, well, wait a minute, we'll send another 50. And so he sent another 50 to go to him. And Elijah said the same thing. If I'm truly a man of God, God send down fire. Poof, gonzo. Another 50 were gone. And so, you know, Aziah obviously started to pick up on something here. 
you know, he didn't send anybody else there. But the history of that is, is that, you know, if Jesus is coming in the spirit of Elijah, and Elijah called down fire from heaven to destroy those who, you know, were trying to attack God's people. But here's the big difference. The people in Elijah's day rejected God and not just people. The difference between the Jews and the Samaritans were they both loved God. They just didn't like each other. And so when they said, this is just like that, Jesus said, no, it's not just like that. Because in that day of Elijah, those people rejected God. And you reject God, I'm telling you right now, that if you reject God, there's a serious consequence that will take place in your life. And the fire that came down of heaven that consumed those people is no different than the fire that will exist in the eternal lake of fire, a place we call hell, where you will be permanently, eternally, in suffering and in misery for your rejection of God's grace in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The symbolism should not be missed. It was literal fire that came down and consumed them. It is literal fire that the Bible teaches in which those who reject Jesus Christ's death on the cross and the power of his resurrection for their forgiveness of sin, it is literal fire and an eternal damnation and consequence that you will experience if you do not repent today and respond by grace through faith to the finished work of Christ. See, it wasn't the same thing here. And Jesus turned to them and rebuked them. He says, but, which is in strong contrast to what they believed, he rebuked them. And I like that. Because we're told in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 18, that all scripture is inspired by God, literally God breathed, and profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The very words of Jesus rebuked them. And what he said to them was, you know what? You're wrong. And in a day where we say there's no moral absolutes or truth, I'm here to tell you that that is a lie from the pit of hell. Because God has absolute truth. And when God says, you're wrong, you're wrong. When he says, Chuck, you're wrong, I have two choices. Either to confess or agree with him that what he's saying about me is true... Or I can continue to be in rebellion and turn my back on him and say, no, you're wrong. Those are the only two options. We're all wrong is what God says. We're all guilty of sin. We're all wrong. None are righteous, no, not one. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. We are all wrong before God. And the choice at that point for you and to me is to say, yes, God, you're right. I am wrong. Or to say, no, I'm not wrong. You're wrong. And to continue to live in our rebellion towards God. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say, God, I agree with you, I am wrong. I know that I'm a sinner. Therefore, I need your forgiveness. Therefore, I believe what you say, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. That he paid the penalty for me. And I'll go to the cross and I'll trust in him. I believe that he was raised from the dead and that he's alive today. And if I go to him, he'll offer forgiveness and eternal life. I believe that he's standing at the door of my life and he's knocking patiently, waiting for me to extend an invitation to him. And if I will invite him into my life, he says he will come in. And those who receive him, to them he's given the privilege to be called children of God to those who believe in his name. Have you opened up your heart to him? 
Or are you still in rebellion against him? Those are the only two options. Have you received him or have you rejected him? Have you invited him into your life as your Lord and Savior? Or do you refuse steadfastly to say, no, I don't need you? Those are the only two choices. Those who receive him will not perish but have everlasting life. What a wonderful truth that is to share with the world those of us who have come to faith in Christ. But you see, he said to them, you know what? You don't know what of spirit or of what kind of spirit you are. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. He's saying, that's not what I ask of you. You know, James and John had already heard in Luke chapter 6, he says, Jesus said, but I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. In Matthew's account, he says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. They had seen it fleshed out in Jesus' life. They had seen him welcome the Samaritan woman at the well. They had heard all about it. Now he's saying to them, you know what? When you went into the Samaritans and they rejected you, you know what? That doesn't matter because you love them. Love your enemies. Receive them. Show mercy towards them. What is it that God requires of us but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God, which is the, the secret of true greatness, to walk in humility before God. And so the conviction at this point is, is that, you know, are, are there people in your life that, frankly, you know what, you can relate to James and John. There are just people that I, I'd like to call fire down out of heaven right now and destroy them for what they've done to me and how they've hurt me and what they've done to my, you know, somebody in my family or somebody in my life or whatever it is. And, and we have this spirit of vengeance Instead of a spirit of mercy, I'm here by the authority of God and the word of God to tell you that if you have anything less than a spirit of mercy, then you are wrong before God. And we must confess that before him. We need to have mercy. That's the spirit that God looks for. You know, the spirit of tolerance is seen in the life of John Wesley. When John Wesley says this, he said, I have no more right to object to a man for holding a different opinion from mine that I have to differ with a man because he wears a wig and I wear my own hair. But if he takes his wig off and he shakes the powder in my face, I shall consider it my duty to get quit of him as soon as possible. He goes on and says, The thing which I resolved to use every possible method of preventing was a narrowness of spirit, a party zeal, a being straightened in our own bowels, that miserable bigotry which makes many so unready to believe that there is any work of God but among themselves. We think, he said, and let think. And I like that. And the reason I like it is because he's saying that, you know, in other words, let other people come to their own conclusions about our God and our Savior. Peter writes that we're always to be ready to give an answer or defense for the hope that is within us. We're always to be ready to share with others the hope that we have. But at the same time, we're to do it with a spirit of gentleness and reverence. We're to, we're to challenge people to consider, well, what is it that you believe? And why do you believe it? And to be able to say, well, I have become convinced. I am persuaded. I've become convinced and I know that he is able to deliver that which I've given to him against that day of judgment, I, I have become convinced that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. 
I have become convinced by the evidence of, of how he has transformed my life. I have become convinced because the more I spend time in the word, the more the word confirms that what is happening in my life is an act of God or a work of God from the will of God, not by my own human efforts. I have become convinced and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have given to him, my very soul, against that day of judgment. I have become convinced. I am persuaded. Are you convinced? Are you persuaded? Do you really believe that this life is all that there is and when you die there's nothing? Do you really believe that? Have you become convinced of that or persuaded of that? Or is there doubt in your mind? Do you really believe that, you know, a bunch of dirt and dust got together and bang, everything that we see came into being based on that? Or do you believe that there must be a designer and a creator to put things together? Because nothing in life happens like that. What other evidence do you have that if you threw a bunch of dirt up into the air, people would come out as a result of it? What other evidence do you have that if you took a bunch of metal and threw it up into the air, you know, a Lamborghini would show up as a result of that? There is no evidence in this universe other than the, fi- the fact that there is a divine creator, that there's purpose and there's order and, there's, and, 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 and it's all laid out before us. I have become convinced of what I believe based on the evidence that is presented. What do you believe and are you convinced of that? See, we're to do with a spirit of gentleness and reverence, not with anger and mean-spirited. You know, I hear people, they debate, you know, whether God exists or doesn't, and they get all, you know, they, they, they get into that pushing contest. Well, I believe God exists. No, he doesn't. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. No, he doesn't. It's like, you know what? What difference does it make to you what they believe? It makes an eternal difference what they choose to believe, but I have become convinced and I'm persuaded. It doesn't change what I believe at all. I'm always open to listen if somebody says, no, I don't believe what you believe, and here's why. I'd love to hear it. But I also like to share with you why I've become convinced. I stand here today. I'm not the same person that I was in 1978 when I gave my life to Jesus Christ and believed on him as my Savior. I've been born again by the will of God, not by my own human efforts. Old things passed away. All things became new. I, I stand here today as a direct result of the work that God has done in my life. And I'm convinced of that. There's no other explanation for it. And so when we look at this, he's saying, you know, we we need to have a spirit of tolerance. Not anger or vengeance or any of that. We're to have the spirit of mercy. In other words, we're to let others come to their own conclusions. You know, it doesn't matter how many folks think like us. Because we can get a whole bunch of people to think like us. But it doesn't guarantee that even what we all think together is right. And so it's not a question of I need people to support my argument. I don't need anybody else to support my argument because I know what he's done in my life. And I know what the word of God tells me about the person and the work that Jesus Christ does in the life of a sinner who turns from sin and turns to God for forgiveness. We don't need to have a bunch of people in our our corner because we could have a whole bunch of people that are all wrong in their thinking. It's not a matter of how many people. It's a matter of what is true or not. And so as we look at this, when his nephew, again, John Wesley, when his nephew Samuel, the son of his brother Charles Wesley, entered the Roman Catholic Church, John Wesley wrote to him and said this, You know, whether in this church or that, I care not. You may be saved in either or damned in either. He said, but my fear is that you are not born again. And his attitude was, it's not a matter of church affiliation. I say people get in arguments about denominations all the time. Non-denomination, interdenomination, uh, this denomination, that denomination. You know, it's not about denominations. 
It's about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And if you trust in Him, it doesn't matter what denomination that you associate with or affiliate with. The bottom line is, if you have repented of your sin and you turn to trust in Jesus Christ, His death on the cross and the power of His resurrection on your behalf, then the Bible says that you are saved from the consequence of sin. Get into arguments about denominations. We're a Bible-teaching, Christ-centered church. That's what we are, but you know what? If somebody goes to denomination, don't get in an argument with them about it. Lift up the name of Jesus. It's all about him. And his concern was, I don't care what church you go to. All I care is whether you've come to faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Because the only way to get to heaven is to be in Christ, not to be in church. The Methodist invitation was simple. Let all who love the Lord come here. And I like that. Let all who love the Lord be welcomed here. Let all who love the Word of God be welcomed here. And let all who aren't sure whether they love the Lord or not sure where they stand or they're checking it all out, my hope is that may all people who come feel welcome here. Because we hope that you'll see the love of Christ in us and the hope that we have in the one and only Savior of this world. And His love should shine through us to you. We're not here to argue with you. We're not here to debate in a mean-spirited way. We're here to lift up Jesus Christ before you. For you to consider His claims. For you to consider what He's done. For you to consider what the Bible says about Him. So that you will hopefully draw to Him as your Savior as well. See, we're not always going to agree because I'll guarantee you every decision that we make, there's somebody else that has a different thing that they do. We find it, it's, it's a most hilarious thing on our, on, our, on our board every time that we meet. It's the most incredible thing. Every time one idea comes out, there's an equally and contrasting idea that comes out of another person's mouth. And we just laugh because we know God's hand's got to be in this that we get anything done because we're just so different in every area. But one thing that we all agree upon is we agree upon, you know what? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And reaching the world with the Word of God and building up those who do in their faith. And all the rest of the stuff, you know, it's like, you know, <laughs> whatever. You know, let's just, let's just keep getting, let's get moving, you know, because we got stuff to do. See, the conviction that our beliefs and our methods alone are correct has probably been the greatest cause of more tragedy and distress in the church than almost anything else. And we need to recognize that, you know what, there are many ways that God reaches human hearts. God has his own secret stairway into every human heart. You know, God reveals himself in many ways. And if we went around in this building and we asked, how did God get your attention? It'll be unique to you. There may be some similarities because we know that he's come to seek and to save that which is lost, but we know it'll be unique to you. There's only one name given to men under heaven by which men can be saved, and that's the authority that God has given Jesus Christ to forgive sins by his death on the cross. He humbled himself to the point of obedience on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him above every other name. There's no other authority. There's no other name. There's no other way that a man can find forgiveness with God but through Jesus Christ, period. There, there, you know, that's all that there is. That's what the Bible teaches. And so therefore, we don't back down from that because there's not all roads lead to heaven. There's only one. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And no one else but, but through him can you go to the Father. But in all these other areas, we need to recognize and understand we need to have tolerance and a spirit of mercy. 
I love Abraham Lincoln was criticized for being too courteous to his enemies. And when he was reminded that it was his duty to destroy them, he gave this great answer that I hope that we will adopt, and that is this. He said, do I not destroy my enemies when, they, when I make them my friends? And what a great attitude. Do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? Jesus said he did not come to destroy lives, but to save them. In John three sixteen through 18, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And he goes on to say, I did not come to condemn men because the world has been condemned already. I didn't come to condemn men. Men are already condemned before God. We all fall short of the glory of God. None of us are righteous. No, not one. We've all sinned. We've all gone astray. Jesus didn't come to condemn this world. He came to save it, to seek and to save that which was lost. And neither should you or I condemn anyone because it is not our place to do that. It is only for God to judge. But we are here to expose them to the greatest news they'll ever hear. Despite the fact that they are dead in their sins and they're rebelling against God, God loves them anyway. And he sent Christ to die in their behalf. And if they'll turn from sin and they'll turn to him and they'll humble themselves before God and they'll trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin, they will be forgiven. And they will have the newness of life that you and I who have trusted him have as well. See, that being said, there's a window of opportunity that's here now for those who will go to Jesus Christ and seek his forgiveness. And we must never take that for granted because one day he shall come and he will judge the living and the dead. And he will judge them according to their deeds, which were evil. He will judge them according to whether they received him or rejected him. And the reality is the judgment comes for rejection. And those of us who receive him will never be judged for sin. He came to take away our sins, past, present, and even the ones in the future that we haven't even thought about doing. And with that in mind, that backdrop, he goes on to say that there's a dedication. There's a dedication to maintain or to stay the course, to stay on the road, to fight the good fight, to keep the faith, to finish the course. And he says, and as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you'll go. Now, in these verses, you know, they introduce us to the facts of life for those who are following Jesus. We're not merely to imitate him. We're to be conformed into his image. We're to enter into his life. And there's three things that he wants us to recognize and understand what it means to follow Jesus. Number one, it means that there will be hardship in our life. This man said, hey, I'll follow you wherever you go. You know, years ago when I first came to faith in Christ, we used to sing a chorus. Some of you probably know it. And it was, I've decided to follow Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. You know what? And we didn't have a clue what that meant. Seriously, we don't have any idea. Just follow Jesus. You know, some people are told, follow Jesus, you know what, and your business will do better. Follow Jesus, and your marriage and your family will do better. Follow Jesus, you'll have more money in your bank. Follow Jesus, you'll get a Rolex watch. You know, follow Jesus. It's like, where, where does this come from? Because I'm reading right here, he says, you know what? He goes, hey, you know, you don't even know what you're talking about. You know, I like your attitude. Give you an A for attitude, but as far as comprehension, you got a D here, buddy. You know, he's going, and Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's saying it's a but, which is a contrast to what this man was thinking. And God, knowing all of our thoughts, this guy thought, man, I'm going to follow Jesus, and life's going to be just so cushy and wonderful. He's saying, but you know what? I don't even have a place to lay my head. There are going to be hardships in the lives of those who follow Jesus. 
Think about it. Denying ourselves, picking up our cross daily, following Him. That's not a road to easy street. That's a road to death. We die to self. And we live for His will. If your Christian life has not been difficult or filled with hardship, then you're not living the life that God has ordained for you to live. You know, because we have a choice. The first time we come to hardship or difficulty, then we've got to decide whether we're going to stay the course, maintain the path, you know, keep the faith, or whether we're going to acquiesce to the culture and just kind of go with the flow. Be not conformed to this world, transformed by the renewing of our mind. Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, you're following me on the same path that I traveled. That path led to my crucifixion, but that's okay because I was also exalted. So don't worry about persecution today don't worry about hardship today that's why they said if you're persecuted for the name of jesus praise god that you would be considered worthy to suffer for his sake it's a wonderful thing when you recognize and i start to go man my whole attitude changes when i realize that if god considered me worthy that he would trust me with the affliction of cancer so that this hardship can bring him glory so that this hardship can bring people into my life that i can share the great hope that is within me so that this hardship will give me an opportunity to be ready to share the defense or to give a defense for the hope that is within me in christ and him crucified and him resurrected why aren't you miserable why aren't you feeling sorry for yourself why aren't you frightened because i don't have to be frightened he's given us a spirit of not of timidity or fear but of power and love and a sound mind sound mind knowing the promises of god what should we be frightened of if i die i'll be absent from the body and present with the lord and if i live that's okay too to some degree because i'll still be with you but which do you think is going to be better don't take it personal But let's stop and think about it. You know, and and the world looks at us and they don't understand us. Why? Because they don't have the hope that we have. And we are ready at that moment to share the hope that is within us. And it's a wonderful place to be. So can I challenge you to consider that the hardships of this life are not because God is upset with you. If it's not a consequence of sin, then you consider joyful, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance, and endurance have its perfect result that we're complete, mature, lacking in nothing. So if there are hardships in your life because you are following Christ, praise God He considers you worthy to entrust you with those hardships so that you can use it as a platform to lift up Jesus. Isn't that great? That is a great place to be. But I'll guarantee you right now, none of you are praying for hardships, are you? Nobody is. No one's signing up. We're going to have a table next week. Hardships, sign up here. And you won't have to worry about getting in the back of that line. Nobody signs up for it. None of us want it. It's part of the human condition. None of us want hardships. None of us want affliction. None of us want persecution. Everybody wants to be loved. Everybody wants to be liked. Everybody wants to be included. But you know what? Unless you're walking with Jesus, if you are, it's impossible. 
Because you'll know the difficulty and the discomfort of loving difficult people. You'll know the discomfort of giving until it hurts. You'll know the discomfort of putting you know, oneself out for the ministry of Christ and for his church. You'll know the discomfort of a life out of step with this modern culture. You know what it'll feel like to be different in your classroom, in your place of business, in your community, in your family. You know, that it'll be, you know what the discomfort is like to be set aside and everybody looks at you like you're crazy... Because you believe what God says and you take him at his word. You know what it's like. You know the difficulty that goes along with it. But you know what? What a great place to be. Praise God. Because it's an affirmation that Christ lives within you. See, we need to recognize and understand that we will be disliked. We'll have an occasional sense of having nowhere even to lay our own head. But Christ rewards far out value anything that's lost by following him. The promise that he made when Peter said, hey, well, what's in it for us? I love Peter. How many of you have thought that? If I'm suffering like this for your sake, what's in it for me? Why should I continue to do this? And here's what Jesus said. Well, I'll tell you why. I tell you the truth. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age and with them, he goes, and in the age to come, eternal life. I love that. You know what he's saying? There is nothing that you will ever give up this side of eternity that God doesn't have a hundred times better for you in his kingdom. Nothing. What do you think you're giving up? A relationship? So what? A job? Big deal. A career? Hey, God can, you know, he can move you to another place. You know, why are you selling out? See, this guy said, oh, I'll follow you. He didn't even know what he was saying. So you don't know what it means to follow me, but I'll show you what it means. How many times did the disciples say, oh, you know, we'll drink that cup. Oh, yeah, we'll drink that. No, no big deal. What's the big deal about drinking a cup? And he's like, no, you don't understand. The cup which I drink is my own death upon the cross. Are you willing to follow me to your death? It's easy to say it. It's another thing to live it. Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame for the joy that was set before him. And so should we. The second thing is there is a sense of urgency. Notice this in verse 59 and 60. He said, and he said to another, follow me. But he said, permit me first to go bury my father. But Jesus said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Now, some people think, oh, that's so, I mean, that's brutal. You know, this guy's dad died and Jesus won't even let him go bury him. And that's not what happened at all. What the guy was saying was this. This guy's dad was probably in his 40s and probably he wasn't even sick. What he's saying was, I'll follow you when it's convenient for me. But right now, you know, I've got too much going on in life. It's kind of like, you know, people that say, oh, you know what? (laughs) Well, Lord... And isn't it true the only time that we basically look for the Lord's second coming is when we're having a bad day? Isn't that the truth for most of us? Even so, Lord Jesus, please quickly come. Well, you're having a bad day, right? Well, what is that? I mean, we should be longing for his appearance at all times, but at the end of all of it, it isn't kind of like because we're having a bad day. The best day this side of eternity is nothing going to be compared to what's going to be in his presence. It's like, so why are we just longing when we're having a tough day? We should always long for his appearance because we know what it's going to be like. But until then, we need to have a sense of urgency. And what's the sense of urgency? Look what he said. To preach the gospel. To preach the gospel. If someone told you you had three months to live, six months to live, nine months to live, 
you know, that what you, what you have wrong with you, you know, there's a 90% chance you won't live for six months. What would that do to your life? Well, you wouldn't become less responsible, would you? You'd become more responsible. And one of the great blessings of cancer and one of the great blessings of, you know, going to people that can't tell me anything other than the fact that, yeah, you got cancer and the pathology report says that's what it is and, okay, well, what should we do about it? Well, the drug resistance tests say that there's only 15% chance that those drugs would have any impact on it. Okay, well, that's pretty evident to me that that's not a good enough percentage for me to subject myself to that. So, you know, what, what, are, you, what are you telling me? And they all look at me like, I don't know. Okay, you know, pay your copay at the front and have a nice day. You know, it's kind of like, well, what is that? So, you know, when we drove out this week after going to the oncologist, and Linda and I just looked at her and I smiled and I said, you know what, God's got us right where he wants us. Because we can't trust in men, we can't trust in percentages, we can't trust in drugs, or we can't trust in anyone but him and him alone, and that's a great place to be. But I'll tell you what it does. It gives you a renewed sense of urgency like I've never had before. Because when I'm laying in a hospital bed and I'm seeing people whose lives are, you know, their death is imminent, I realize, you know what, nothing else matters. And what Jesus was saying was the sense of urgency that it had is this. Time is short. Redeem the time wisely. And you know how we do that? You go and proclaim the gospel. You go and proclaim the gospel. Because as I told one guy when I was going through my radiation lessons, I said, hey, look, you know what? If you're healed of this cancer, then what? You're going to die eventually. I'm going to die. We're all going to die. You know, the soul that sins dies. The wages of sin is death. Consequence of sin and rebellion against God is we're all, we're all born into the world to die. But he gives us this life, this opportunity, this window to turn from sin and to turn to Christ and to trust in him. And the sense of urgency that Jesus was saying was this. You know what? There is nothing more important in life than proclaiming the good news of God's love in Jesus Christ and in him crucified. There is nothing more important. There's a sense of urgency that you have when you recognize that, you know what? It's the only thing that matters. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you're, you know, how long you're at your job or how much money that you made or what house you bought or what second house or, or what car you drive or, or how much money's in your bank account or what your retirement portfolio says. None of those things matter. The only, things that matter, the only thing that matters is this. Do you know Christ as your Savior? That is all that matters because everything else will fade away. Everything else is temporary, but the souls of men and the Word of God are eternal, and you will either live in His presence or you will live outside of His presence to the degree that you will be punished in a place that's called hell. Literally, you will suffer for all of eternity. And God's saying, I don't want you to suffer. I want you to trust in me, but I give you the freedom, the free will to choose. What will it be? Will you receive Christ or will you reject Him? And a wait vote is rejection. If the Samaritans had said, let us think about it for a while, you know what? That party would have already been past Samaria and it would have been too late. A wait vote is rejection. And we need to recognize and we need to understand. And I see people, and and, and it's amazing to me, saying that, you know what? We need to have a sense of urgency now. I see people and they look at me like, and even some of you, and you look at me like, I feel so sorry for you of what you're going through and, you know, and all that stuff. And I appreciate your compassion and, and your empathy. But listen, don't feel sorry for me. I know Jesus as my Savior. If you want to feel sorry for people, feel sorry for your family. 
Feel sorry for your coworkers. Feel sorry for those on your team or in your classroom or in your neighborhood who have never come to know Christ as their Savior. Have a broken heart for them. Feel sorry for them. Because if they die outside of the grace of God and trusting in Christ, they will spend an eternity with no chance to ever do it over again. Let us stop feeling sorry for ourselves and feel sorry for those who we should feel sorry for. Those who do not know Christ as our Savior. Let us have a sense of urgency to reach this world with the Word of God like we've never had it before. Because I'm telling you right now, we have all been given a death sentence. And it is ridiculous to feel sorry for someone if someone says they got nine months to live any more than the fact that, you know what, you don't know if today's the day that's appointed for you. And when I see people look at me like, I go, you know, I appreciate and I know what you're trying to convey, but you know what, don't feel sorry for me. Because you don't know if today's your appointed day. We go to doctors and they say, this person has, you know, three months to live. Get your affairs in order. They live for 20 years. And they tell another person, you got a 98% cure rate and they die in three months. Why? How? Why does that happen? Well, that's just God's way of saying, you know what? There's only one God, doctor, sir. You're not him. I am. I've got a day appointed. I know before you've lived one day how many days you'll live. I know every hair of your head. I know all these things. I know when you get up. I know when you go to sleep. I know what you're thinking even right here and right now. I know you. I made you. I formed you. I created you. But through your father, Adam, you rebelled against me and turned from me. And it's time to come back. It's time to return. It's time to trust in me. The window of opportunity is now. And the last thing is there's a focus in verse 61 and 62. And another also said, I'll follow you, Lord. But first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Distractions of this life. But Jesus, and every one of these you notice, but there's a contrast. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And the illustration that he used was that of a farmer. He's saying, if you have a plow in your hand and you're going forward and you start looking back, the next thing you know, you're not furrowing straight lines. You're not maintaining the course. You're getting sidetracked. You're getting detoured. You're getting, you know, you're off on a different direction. And he's saying that anybody looks back like that, you know, there's, no, there's nothing good. That farmer's not going to be a good farmer. He's saying when you put your hand to the plow and you focus and you fix your eyes on Jesus and you set your face and you resolutely and determinedly say that I will follow you no matter where you lead me. No, there's no turning back. There's nothing in the rearview mirror to look at. And God wants his people to live in the moment, the present moment. He says, don't be anxious for tomorrow because each day has enough trouble of its own. And the Apostle Paul said, I forget what lies behind, but I press on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Don't let your past hold you back from living a life of obedience today. That is a strategy of the enemy. You are not disqualified because you failed God at some point in the past. You know what? If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you, cleanse you from it, pick you up, dust you off, and say, you know what? Today is the day of the Lord. You be obedient and you follow me today. There is no sense looking back in the rearview mirror because yesterday is behind. Today hasn't, tomorrow hasn't come yet. Today is the day of the Lord. Let us rejoice, be glad in it, and be obedient today. We need a sense of focus that today's the day. Today is the day. And when God, His Holy Spirit, convicts you of things that you need to do, then I will challenge you, do them today. Because I will guarantee you this. 
when God speaks and says, Chuck, do this today, and I say, Lord, I'll put it off till tomorrow, I never get around to being obedient to God. Isn't that the truth? Have God ever say, hey, you know what, call so-and-so. Write them a note. Send them an email. Send them a card. Do something. And you can go, yeah, I need to do that. Uh, you know, but I just don't have time today. When tomorrow comes, they'll say, do it again. You say, I don't have time today either. The next day comes, do it again. And before you know it, you don't even hear it anymore. But you've never been obedient. If God is telling you to do something today, do it today. William Borden, in closing, was the heir of a wealthy Chicago family. And in 1904 and 1905, at the age of 18, he traveled around the world. And you probably know Borden Milk, the, the, the company. He says, uh, this was followed by brilliant education at Yale and then Princeton Seminary, where he committed his life to seek to win the Muslims in China to Christ. Before he left for China, he gave away $500,000, which is equivalent to $10 million today. He served at the age of 23 as a trustee of the Moody Bible Institute. And in 1913, at the age of 26, he left for Egypt and he never looked back. And it was the final year of his life because in Cairo he contracted cerebral meningitis. And he was just laying in bed dying. He scribbled this note, and I put it on your note so you'll have it to remember. He wrote, no reserve, no retreat, and no regrets. I had no reservation in following Jesus. I didn't turn back when obstacles came. And I have no regrets, even though at the age of 26, I lie here dying in a hospital. No reserve, no retreat. And no regrets. What a great way to live. Can you say the same thing? You can if today you will follow him in obedience. If today, if you have never put your faith and trust in Christ, today is the day. If he's calling you, then you trust in him. You turn from sin. You trust in him. You trust in his death on the cross. You trust in the power of his resurrection. You receive him as your savior And I guarantee you by the authority of God that you will never have a regret for making that decision, for humbling yourself before him. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Let's pray. Father, we just love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it's not candy-coated, sugar-coated, or made into something that we would want it to be, but it's just the truth. That God, those who turn to you and trust in Christ, not only have eternal life, but are called to live a life that's pleasing to you that will involve hardship and heartache and trials and tribulation and many other ways that we will suffer for your sake. But may we consider ourselves worthy and and praise you for that, that privilege. God, may we have a sense of urgency that there's nothing more important than sharing your gospel with those who do not know the good news of your great love in Jesus Christ and in him crucified and resurrected. God, may we have a sense of urgency to share that message with our family, with our friends, and with our co-workers, with our neighbors, with all who come into our life, that we would be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us, not in a mean-spirited way, but in, with gentleness and reverence before you. And God, may we have such a determined focus that Jesus had, that same attitude, where he resolutely set his face for Jerusalem. 
He endured the pain and despised the shame. For the joy that was set before him, he knew how it would all turn out. And God, so do we. And may we too live a life in such a way that our face is set towards your eternal kingdom. Our citizenship is in heaven. May we redeem every day wisely as the days are evil and that they're short. God, we love you. We thank you. We praise you in Christ's wonderful name. Amen.